0: This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. This morning's scripture reading is from Psalm 115. Again, that's Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and Forevermore praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Ben. Good morning, Park Church. I want to give you guys full permission to not let the 9 a.m. talk any trash against you guys. They have nothing on you. They, the energy in this room, there's like maybe a couple people on their tippy toes at the 9 a.m. This was a beautiful thing, so thank you. Um, but the entertainment, um, I think, is going to go downhill from there. So, sorry, that was kind of the, the climax. You um, know, we're we're continuing Christ in the Psalm series. Um, welcome to those of you here in person, also those tuning in from home or wherever you are. Um, just another quick invitation as it makes sense for you as you feel comfortable uh, we'd love to have you back Uh, worshiping in person with the family of God is so significant hearing the word of God preached songs being sung uh, that really matters so I encourage you guys to to come back when you can uh, when it makes sense medically or whatever else is going on in your life right now uh, we'd love to have you so good to see you all though my name is Neil one of the pastors here at park um and a quick word about summer in Colorado, especially those of you who uh, maybe are newer to the state, newer to the city. Uh, we see this every summer. Uh, people that have been around the city, have been around the church for a while, uh, it's a time to travel. All right? It's like, hey, most of us are not from here, so we're going to see family, or family's coming in from out of town, and so we're going to the mountains. We just got back from steamboat um, ourselves last night from being up there with, some, with family. Um, so any given Sunday, a lot of our kind of regular tenders and members um, are not, not even here a lot of times during the summer. Um, then on the flip side, summer's the time when a lot of people are moving into the city. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of new folks, I think COVID has actually increased that, like Denver was already one of the fastest growing cities. Uh, I think we've kind of moved up a little bit um, just because of, of what the, the mountains afford and everything else. Um, so for those of you who are new, welcome. And let's just assume that the people around you are as new or newer than you. And so they're not being standoffish. Maybe they're just curious if you'll be their friend. And so you should be the first initiator. And uh, go get lunch or coffee or whatever else. And for those of you who part Church is your home, let's, let's kind of push against some of the malformation that we've all experienced over the past year plus uh, where we're trying to, like, keep away from people and, like, can I really, I mean, we're already feeling that. The energy during passing the peace was... Phenomenal. It was just a delight to, to hear unmasked voices um, singing, but then also just talking with one another. It's really, really a gift. Um, but let's, let's live into this identity as a family. Let's initiate with folks who, who are newer to our church, uh, newer to this community, newer to the city, and let's love on them well, uh, living into this call to be the family of God. Um, and there's grace. Like, we wore masks for a long time, so we all forget people's names. Like, people you met right before COVID, and then you forgot what they look like because all you saw was, like, the upper half. And then you see them again, you're like, oh, that, that's you. I forgot. That was you. And you forget their name. It's happened to me plenty of times. So my apologies in advance when it happens again. Um, but let's, yeah, let's embrace the awkwardness and, you know, let's live into uh, this call to be a family. All right. Psalm 5- 115. Now, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive in together. Uh, Father, thank you for this invitation to come and worship you. To see and experience you as the the God who is, the God who delights in us as your people, all those who would call upon your name. To know that your your love is upon us. So as we enter in with our our brokenness, our, our feeble attempts to, to make sense of the world, uh, the places where our, our hearts have run in different directions, uh, even according to this text, you know, where we, we craft idols uh, to give ourselves a sense of meaning and purpose and, and, and hope. Oh, please invite us into the sweet gift of repentance, turning from the idols to you, to see your face, your tender gaze upon us, uh, that you invite us in uh, to receive your love and to walk with you closely. So help us even now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm curious if any of you like me have those certain movie moments that get etched in your mind. Uh, sometimes they're the really significant moments, but sometimes they're not. They're just kind of like part of the storyline, you know, all that, not all that meaningful necessarily, but for some reason it kind of sticks with you. Uh, one for me is from the movie Castaway. You guys remember the movie? It came out around, around 2000. Tom Hanks plays Chuck Noland, uh, who is a FedEx employee, a systems analyst, uh, kind of workaholic, um, kind of sabotages a lot of his relationship with his girlfriend. And uh, he is taking a flight on a FedEx plane across the Pacific. And the plane goes down, it crashes in the middle of the ocean. He is the lone survivor, at least that he's aware of, and makes his way to this otherwise uninhabited island. Um, gets up on a shore and begins to, to try to survive basically through the, the FedEx packages that wash on shore. So he's like, opening up each one, figuring out, is this useful? Can I use this? How can I survive with these things? And one of the things that came on shore was a volleyball, a Wilson volleyball. And as Chuck is, is beginning to, to try to start a fire, he, he gashes his hand open so terribly. It's, it's bleeding everywhere, all over his hand. And just so angry, begins like throwing a lot of the stuff around and getting blood on it. One of the things he picks up is that volleyball, you know, hand right upon it, throws it across, and he finally calms down, he looks over, and he sees that volleyball almost staring back at him, and he grabs it, and he he draws a face on it, and this becomes the other main character in the story, whom he names appropriately Wilson. And now Chuck and Wilson, his newly created friend uh, kind of navigate life on the island together. You know, they're experiencing the highs and the lows and the fears and you know, he's like processing decisions with Wilson and he's like meeting him in these like most intimate moments and you find yourself like growing attached to this volleyball. Like this volleyball becomes this major player in the movie. Well, fast forward later on in the movie, which spoiler alert um, though I think um, there's like a statute of limitations on spoiler alerts. I feel like Melanie can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but t- you've got two, two decades to watch this movie, so <laughs> you can always go back. Um, later on in the movie, he finally creates a raft and is trying to, to get to safety, you know, get to, to someone who would rescue him, and of course, Wilson is right there with him. Well, at one point, Chuck falls asleep, and Wilson rolls off the raft and is out in the ocean, you know, and, and Chuck realizes it, and he, he's just trying desperately, everything he can to get Wilson, his friend back on the raft I finally realized I got to give up like I can't I can't do it and so there's like tragic music coming in the background and he's just like wailing he's like laying on the raft and so distraught and I'm sitting there watching and I'm I'm crying and not just like a tear welling up like I'm crying and then I watched it several months later and it happened to me again like I'm watching it and I'm like Wilson like no but then I look back on it later and I'm like that's embarrassing like, this is an inanimate piece of sports equipment with a bloody handprint and a face drawn on it. And somehow my affections have got like wrapped up in this, and Chuck's affections got so wrapped up in it. Like, this is where our hope is. Like, so much is tied relationally to this thing. Welcome to the way of idolatry. And we all often find ourselves in it. Uh, this psalm, Psalm 115, uh, begins with this heartfelt cry for, for God to get the glory, for him to receive the glory. Not us, not our achievements, not our actions or activity in the world, not who we are, but God to receive the glory. We'll come back to this in a few moments. And then in verse two, it says, why should the nations say, where is their God? And this really begins to, to frame out this next larger section on idolatry. Where is their God? So so people outside the faith community are looking in and saying, hey, where's your God? I'm not seeing evidence of the God that you claim to be real and true and active actually showing up. You can imagine many within the faith community were also asking the same question. Where is our God? Where is our God? Who's given us his word, given us his promises. He's not showing up in the ways that we thought he would or he should that would be consistent with his character. And I think we often find ourselves in a similar position, saying, where is God? Where is he in the midst of this season of life? Where is he in the midst of this grief and this heartache, of this situation that that maybe seems trivial on the outside, but it's like devastating for us? Where is God in the midst of all this? Again, we'll come back to this in a bit. Before we do, I want us to see together how the psalmist instructs us on this thing called idolatry. Idolatry. Look at me starting in verse 3. Look at verses 3 and 4. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. So here we have this contrast. See that our God, the God who is, he, he dwells in the heavens with all authority and sovereignty and power and glory and majesty. And he, he as he sees fit, you know, he does all that he pleases. God is free to do what he wants, and he does it to draw near to us, to move toward his people, to establish a relationship with us, to work throughout the world, to create, to destroy, to build up, to tear down, to save. God is free in the heavens to do as he sees fit. But whereas God is unmade, idols are made by the work of human hands. And whereas God does things out into the world that he has made, idols kind of emerge up from it taking the raw materials around us and crafting something to then put our hope upon. And because of this, these idols have only the appearance of power in life, never the substance, only the appearance of it. Look with me in verses five through seven. They, the idols, they have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not, do not make a sound in their throat. So there is there this appearance of, of the ability to do things, and really this is, this is so much of what in the ancient world would lead people to create idols, uh, some sense of insecurity maybe. Like, are we going to have the provisions that we need? Is you know, this agricultural year going to be protected against the elements and we're going to actually have the produce to sustain our life? Or around fertility, uh, to grow the next generation. Or it could be some sort of aspiration for good fortune or prosperity or to, to lead to good things, a successful life. And so the, the movement was, well, let's, let's make something to give us hope in the midst of that. Well, let's take the things around us and craft and, and kind of form together and say, here's our hope. Here, here's where our life is gonna find meaning. This is gonna lead to the things that we want. We can, we can make sacrifices in this direction to get what we think we need. Because as humans, we want to be blessed. We want to have courage for what's ahead. And a lot of times, we don't believe we will unless we get to work, unless we do something to make it happen, to, to build with our own hands, our own labor, our own activity, to take what's in front of us and then think we have hope in that. And so we have this basic equation with idolatry. In response to insecurity or aspiration, you know, some longing for things to be a certain way, Humans take the raw materials that God has made, that God has gifted to us, that are really good gifts in and of themselves. We take them, and then we, we kind of work our kind of warped uh, desires and longings, and then take human labor to craft something and say, all right, th- this is where our hope is now found. Like, this is where meaning and purpose, and we can find courage. This is going to lead to flourishing, to give us an identity. And then all of our attention, our energy, our affections, our resources, our relationships, everything kind of gets retooled to go that direction and say this is what it's all staked upon. Now we, we tend to be a little more discreet in the ancient world or than the ancient world. Uh, perhaps the second commandment has uh, informed Western society just enough uh, that we don't really have too many graven images of wood and stone and gold and silver and whatever else and saying, okay, here's your shrine, like here's where your hope is found. Um, but we are no less idolaters. We are no less those who create idols from the raw materials around us. In the same way as the ancient world, we have you know, what can be called cultural idols, kind of the things that, that will keep society more broadly stitched together and kind of participate in the life of the broader culture. And then we have kind of our, our personal or household idols, the things that we say, think like more individually, more as, as our family or whatever else, like this is the way we do things and we make these sacrifices and this is gonna to lead to prosperity and the good life. So I wanna consider two, what I think are primary cultural idols within Denver. And then also how we get splintered into many different personal household idols as well. So one primary cultural idol that uh, I think we find in Denver is that of pleasure, the idol of pleasure which says something like this. Uh, Get the right lineup of enjoyable experiences. Uh, Get enough kind of circumstantial happiness. Kind of line up your schedule, your priorities, your relationships, so that it it feeds the desire to to have a really comfortable, enjoyable, pleasure-filled life. In Denver, I think it becomes a little more particularized in saying, wow, this city is amazing. Look, look what it has to offer in terms of the restaurant scene and the breweries and the coffee shops and the entertainment. Uh, and look how close we are to the mountains. Like any, any type of thing you can attach to your Subaru, we can just like zoom out there and go do it. And you can like have community if you want it because they like the same things, but if not, you can quickly shed them. It's like, I, it's our playground. We have all the things that we could want to craft this pleasurable life experience. Now again, idol- idolatry is taking the good gifts that God has given to us and then warping them and elevating them above God and making them into idols. They're good gifts in and of themselves. This is what we tend to do. We tend to so long for pleasure and think this is where the good life is found that we often don't consider kind of at what expense. Like so I want this style of life. I want this pace of life. I want to live this way. I want to give, can I spend my money in these directions? I want to fill up my calendar these ways. I want to be around these people that are easy to spend time with, not considering what's on the backside of that. What's the cost of that? What expense? Which makes it easier to do when many of us are not from Denver. Like we're not from the city. So we can come in and say, well, I don't feel deep roots. I don't feel a lot of ties, relationally or culturally. Um, I just want to enjoy what's here. So the only cost that anything should really have for me is the transactional cost to get the goods and services to build a pleasurable life. That's what I'm going to pursue. So I think the idol of pleasure, it can work it itself out in so many different ways, but I think it intersects with many of us, if not all of us. A second primary cultural idol is that of autonomy, uh, which says... I don't want outside constraint. I don't want people telling me like where I should be or what I should do or what my life should look like. Uh, I don't want some sort of morality or sexual ethic coming coming down and like reigning on the things that that I want to do and want to pursue. I want to be free. Free. I think it's a a mislabeling of, of freedom, misunderstanding of what freedom is because for something or someone to be free... We must understand its nature, its purpose. What was it made for? What's its design? How does it actually operate? And how do we live into it? When we begin living into it, that's where we find true freedom. But our society so often wants to live autonomously. this word autonomy, which literally means a law unto itself. So I don't, I don't want that. No heritage, no morality, no religion, no perspective, no dogma. Not even biology. Like, we're not any, any of these things to kind of tell us this is what life looks like. This is what is good for you. This is where the true and the good and the beautiful can actually be found that leads to flourishing. So often we want to shed all those things away. And I think it's fascinating um, with cultural idols, you know, be they pleasure, autonomy, or any others that we could list off. Even if we find ourselves saying, I'm, and I'm not completely aligned with that," like I don't see that kind of play itself out and cycle through in my life, we must pay attention to how the broader culture that we just spend our everyday lives within. It's, it's sneaky, like, like it finds its way under the hood into our affections, into the, our decision making, into the rhythm, rhythms of our life, the people we spend time with and, and how we're absorbing things. So we, we would do well to pay attention, how do these idolatries of pleasure and autonomy And others you may find, you know, relevant as well for Denver. How do we find those kind of making their way into our lives, influencing the way that we make decisions, that we steward what God's given to us? So cultural idols. We also have a polytheistic plethora of household idols. Like that alliteration? Polytheistic plethora. Polytheistic's like mini-gods. Like we, we have all these different things. We're like trying to spin our plates and maintain at an individual level, saying, if this thing is going to work, if my life is going to be worth anything, meaningful, I need to pursue them, give my life to them, make sacrifices to get them. I find they often revolve around these ideas of significance and security. want to feel like we're significant, we matter. We want to make sure that we're protected against anything that would threaten that. So let's consider some. How would you fill in this blank? And I'll give some examples. I will be satisfied. I will be worth something. My life will have meaning. I can finally rest and have peace when I get this relationship. I get into this friend group. I get married. I have children. I get my children to obey me or at least make me look like a good parent get this promotion, I secure the right career track, I receive this next Amazon purchase, I can finally buy a home, I get this home improvement project done, and then the next one, I attain this level of financial security, I get this academic degree, and when I'm finally healthy and I don't have these same health struggles, to lose enough weight, to be attractive enough, to be valued by those around me, both my husband or my wife would just truly understand me and listen to me. To be seen in all that I do and to serve and give of myself. To have my family restored. To accomplish enough. To get the approval of my parents or my spouse or my boss. To get rid of this shame. And on and on the list can go. We can create our own as well. We so long for these things. Again, really good gifts from God in and of themselves. Like we go down that list and say all those things are, are really good. Really good gifts that God may or may not give to us but what we what we tend to do is we so are captured by them thinking i must have this for my life to be okay that eventually we become enslaved by it and this is the way of idolatry it's exhausting it overpromises idols overpromise and they underdeliver every time every time they promise life and power and opportunity and joy and surely, so often slowly, begins stripping those very things that we thought were, were guaranteed to us, Begins stripping them from our lives. And we begin looking like these idols. Look at me in verse eight. Those who make them, so those who make the idols, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Those who craft and those who rely upon these idols, the raw materials of the earth, that we build into something to give our lives meaning. When we give our lives to that and say, This is when I'm okay. When I get the promises, when I get the benefits of what this idol is, then I'm okay. We begin looking like these idols. And if you remember in verses five through seven, what defines these idols? They have the appearance of life, but they're lifeless. They have the appearance of ability but they have no ability to do anything meaningful out in the world. And this is the movement of idolatry. In a very real sense, we become the worst version of ourselves through idolatry. Because when you think about it, idols are simply our own kind of angsty desires for for hope and confidence, somewhere to put our trust, kind of thrust through human labor, and then that's the output. So we're only left with more of the same angst, even if it kind of delays it, pushes it out a little bit further. We look to the creational world, the relational world, to, to somehow fulfill us. And it never fully can. I remember several years ago, I was processing some unhealthy, idolatrous patterns in my own life with a, a mentor of mine. And I, uh, right before this, I had, I had just taken um, my first attempt at a Sabbath. You know, just like resting, cease from labor, and it wasn't even a full Sabbath. It was like, can I do half a day? Can I do till lunchtime? Like not be, do something productive. Um, Cause I was starting to see like how my life was, was kind of making sacrifices relationally, emotionally, spiritually to uphold something in my life. And so when I did that, first 30 minutes were, were amazing. So like, man, I feel free, I feel delight. I was like reading something that I want to read. I feel rested. And I think about minute 31, <laughs> I begin sinking into a dark hole. And I begin having these voices of shame. It's like increase on the volume. And a sense of inadequacy and failures, uh, particularly relationally. Just like thinking back, like, oh man, I, I failed this person here. And what's that person thinking over here? Like my mind is going to all these things. Couldn't even concentrate on, on the thing I was reading or what I was trying to enjoy, being outside. So I went to my mentor, I'm like, and I, I kind of laughed, I was like, it's almost like an addiction. And I looked over at him, and he was, he was not laughing. Um, he just had this, like, piercing gaze into my soul and didn't say anything. And then it dawned on me. I said, oh, it's not like an addiction. This is an addiction. I so need work and labor and to feel productive because you know the thing that would, actually, that would make the voices stop? It's when I got back to work. The thing that, that, that kind of put, put those things at bay, and I still feel this come out, cycle through my life again and again. If I, if I can just like go do something productive, it could be paid work, it could be a house project, it be anything. It's like go be productive. You know, have something that I can point to and say, here's the output of, of my investment. Like something I've done, I'm, I'm meaningful now. I'm, I'm, I'm not inadequate. Like I'm actually, you know, I'm trying to prove myself. That would put those voices back on the shelf. But this is what, I mean, this is what idolatry does. It promises greatly, but it can't deliver. It may seem to in the short run, but it begins stealing our life from ourselves, because we begin making more and more sacrifices of ourselves, of our health, of our important relationships, of our work, of the things around us, because idols will drain us and saying, "Give more, give more, give more to obtain these promises that we never can actually get from them." It was fascinating to me when studying this passage that the commentators couldn't agree uh, what the, the context of this psalm was. They actually had decidedly different perspectives. A lot of times the psalms were like, we just don't know. Like, we'll try to read into it a little bit, we just don't know. Um, here, I found at least four. One, they said, Israel's devastated. It's probably during exile. I was like, deep distress, and they're crying out to God. It was like, prove yourself. The, the nations are saying, Where is your God? Because you made all these promises, and they're in a deep, deep, dark season. But others said, actually, this is on the heels of a victory. That's it's, it's why there's verse one. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name, give the glory. They've just won some battle or had some sort of success in life, and so they're 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 praising God for it. Others would say, well, Israel's life was troubled, but it wasn't devastating. You know, so maybe it was like post-exile, during restoration, things were hard, they felt some pressures, but it wasn't like awful, awful. It was just like difficult. And still another said that this is just generally a psalm of trust uh, for all seasons, all ages, kind of all walks of life that we find ourselves within. And I wonder if this lack of an obvious context is instructive for us, that no matter where we are, no matter where we find ourselves, and no matter if you're kind of like in a season of blissful joy and success and it's like things are going well for you um, or things are devastating, You're experiencing a lot of grief and darkness and heartache. Wondering where where God is in the midst of all this. Or you just feel like you're, you're just walking through the mundane, the everyday. Just kind of doing your thing and kind of cruising along. No matter where we find ourselves, there's an abiding temptation to run to idolatry. Even where things are good. We begin looking to those good gifts and say, ah, this is my source of joy and confidence. This is where life comes from. I need these things to be okay. I'm so glad they're here. And the dark seasons, that's when we begin to to, to look elsewhere and say, God, you don't seem to be showing up. I need to craft something else. I need to look somewhere else to find a source of joy. And then in the mundane, things just become neutral and can feel commonplace. So we look for somewhere for excitement, to give our life a a greater sense of meaning or purpose. But though there is an abiding temptation to idolatry, there's even a greater Abiding opportunity to run to God, who is the satisfier of all the things that we seek to get in the idols that we craft. He is the one who provides all of these things. Look with me, uh, verses 9 through 11. O Israel, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. O Aaron, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. One pastor and author said that if God says something once, we listen carefully. If he says it twice, we pay strict attention. And if he says it three times, we're to drop it all and give full attention to study, ponder, memorize, meditate on, and joyfully obey whatever it is. And here we have such an instance. O Israel, the collective assembly of God's people, trust in the Lord. He is your help and shield. O House of Aaron, the designated class to to mediate the worship uh, of of, of God, uh, of the people, to God. Trust in the Lord. He is your help and shield. All those who would fear the Lord, speaking here of including the proselytes, those who would come enter into the family of God, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. Then he goes on in verse 12. The Lord has remembered us, he will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. I think this, is, this really summarizes what humans long for. We long to be remembered. We long to be known in the, the, the intricacies and the intimacies of our lives. Yes, circumstantially, like what's going on out here, but, but maybe even more so, like what's going on internally? What are we processing through? The stresses that we feel, the depression that we're walking through, the anxiety that we can't shake, the relational pain and the grief and the sorrow, we want to be remembered. And God's remembering is is not just some sort of like recollection of facts as if he's forgotten something, but rather he's calling to mind in such a way that he's going to act in accordance with his covenant. His remembrance is almost always tied to his covenant. He remembers the relationship that he's, he's, he's established with us and he's getting ready to act in accordance with it. That, that's what it means for God to remember us. We, we also want this help and a shield. We want someone to come in and, and be able to do something about where we are. To genuinely help us. Not just have like good sentiments around but be, but be able to have the power to do it. And to be our shield. To anticipate what's out in front of us. Even where we don't see it. We don't recognize it. We don't know it. We've us actively working, protecting us and guiding us. Giving us what we need. And we're a society in search of stability, somewhere to, to put our confidence and our rest. You look at, right now, the, the, the public in, in the United States, the public confidence in our institutions is at an all-time low. I think probably highlighting the list would be our media institutions, which is like meant to be this dispassionate, you know, reporter of facts, like unbiased, and I think in many cases become quite the opposite. Um, So for good reason, but like the things that kind of make society work in a lot of ways, trust is at an all-time low. Additionally, according to Pew Research, 21% of U.S. adults are experiencing high levels of psychological distress, which is not even, there's almost a quarter high levels, not to mention those who are experiencing moderate or low levels of it. Medications for anxiety, depression, insomnia, and the like, uh, which spiked early on in COVID remain high. Uh, and this is not to, to stigmatize taking medications for any of these things. There are many of us in this room who have taken or are taking medications uh, for for any number of those things, and there's really good reason for that. Um, oftentimes, it's not to stigmatize that, but it's 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 to recognize, kind of culturally, there's this collective angst that we have. Like, where do we go? Where do I find hope? Where do I find confidence? Where, where do I go that is actually trustworthy? Where will I be remembered? Where? Will I have the help and the shield that I so long for? Because really what we're longing for is to be blessed, which is the recurring word in verses 12 through 13. Now, That's a word that I think gets thrown around in conversation and tossed into hashtags and wherever else, and I think it's lost a lot of its meaning. You know, longing to, you know, usually pointing to, it's like the circumstantial like happiness, like things are going pretty well for me right now, so I can, I can post that, I can feel good about it. The biblical concept of blessing is much richer. It always highlights the relationship between the one who is blessing and the one who's receiving that blessing. Because For there to be a blessing, there must be a blesser and then a recipient of it who is blessed and what's in view, whether it's going from the greater to the lesser, the lesser to the greater, is always the type of relationship that exists between the two. And we know that we have this type of relationship with the God of the universe, that he's remembered us according to his covenant. And this brings us back to verses 1 through 3. Read with me again, starting in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It's often in those kind of where is their God moments. Where is my God? Where is God? It's in those moments we come face to face with our idolatry. Our temptations to run to it, but also kind of exposes the places we've already kind of built a life around the idols. Where is God? And it's at these points we must turn and declare again, not to us, O Lord, not to us, not to me, not to my will, not to my work ethic, not to my common sense, not to my experience, not to what I know, not to the people around me, not to the things that I've relied upon in the past that have worked for me in some way, but to your name be the glory. I look to you. And why? For the sake of your steadfast love, your covenantal love and your faithfulness no matter how absent he may feel right now. We have that question, the kind of lingering question that's just been sticking with me as I've been even preparing this text in verse two. Where is their God? Where is their God? And to know that the fullest answer to this question is the person and work of Jesus. Where is their God? He's the one who took on human flesh to experience our brokenness to, to walk through this sin-sick world, to experience heartache and grief, to identify with us in every way possible apart from sin, and then to take our sin, to take our idolatry, the places that we run elsewhere, to put our hope and our confidence and our joy, the ways in which we've crafted a life apart from him, where we run even though we know his love and we go again and again and again, all of that he took upon himself on the cross, bore it, bore the wrath of God, bore our sin, bore the penalty for it, and he said it is finished. No more penalty. No more punishment. Free in the love of God. Where is their God? Where is our God? He came to us in the person and work of Jesus, and he suffered and died on our behalf. Then he rose to new life to give that life to all who would come to him, all who would drink deeply, who would receive freely what he has put on offer. But not only that, those who trust in God will have life forever. Forever. Jump down to verses 17 and 18. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord for this time forth forevermore. Praise the Lord. Kind of the the implicit argument here is, it's like, well, God has made us and then remade us to praise him. And we know that, that the dead don't do the praising. And so if that's the case, God is going to sustain our life in such a way that we can continue doing the very thing that he's called us to do, that he's made us to do, which is to give him praise. This is likely an early nod to the resurrection life that we see in Jesus. That he rose from the dead, conquering sin, Satan, and death itself, to give us life forever, that we will one day dwell with God, see him face to face, to experience him, to know him, to know his love, gathered with his people, No more sorrow, no more grief, but only the fullness of his presence. But my heart goes out to those of us who who hear that and say, yes, I know. Okay, look to Jesus. I know Jesus is the answer. He has come to us already through his perfect life, through the cross, through through the resurrection. We know that he is coming to make all things new yet again. But what, what about this present life? we just kind of like avoid the good things in this world and kind of be a little bit scared of it and just like hold on tight and make our way through. Look at me in verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. This is not to say that, you know, the Lord just kind of dwells distantly from what happens here on earth, or that he's, he doesn't care, or he's not involved in it, he's not doing things. Rather, it means that in his freedom that we saw in verse 3, his divine freedom, his sovereignty, his authority, he decided to create humanity to become stewards of the earth and all that's here, to make sense of it, to make decisions, to move forward in it. And so our response to the temptation to idolatry is not to retreat from the world, to not retreat and pull so far away from it that we just kind of live I'm a little concerned. I can't enjoy the good things the city has to offer. I can't go up to the mountains. I need to feel like guilty around these things. I can't can't enjoy a a relationship that God gives to me, but rather to submit all of these things under the refrain of verse one, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give the glory. Entering into as stewards under God's good reign. Making decisions, processing what's in front of us, seeing what the next step is forward, enjoying the benefits that he gives to us, making the necessary sacrifices to love those around us. About five years ago, my wife and I were thick in a season of navigating uh, infertility, you know, the longing for a good gift of having children and. Not again and again, receiving the response of "no," or at least not yet. The the doctors, the specialists, the questions, the theories, reading, the tests, the conversations, and so on. Uh, It was painful and disorienting and grievous. And it's like month by month would go by, and we just feel the loss of something that wasn't even there. But it's like this this dream, this desire. And we would often remind ourselves of. Christ has come, he loves us, he's laid down his life for us, we have life in him and it's, it's forever. Like we'll be restored to him forever one day and that would, that would root us, that would establish us and, and remind us with, with the confidence that we have and yet we then would have to pick up the phone and make, make the next phone call or sit down with the doctor and process what our options were or to, to just like go before God in prayer, pleading with him uh, to give us this good gift. I think this is where verse 16 can be helpful for us. Knowing that we are rooted in the love of Christ, knowing that we have a future with him forever, and that he has placed us in this season. He's placed you in this season, this set of circumstances, this relationship, this heartache, this success, this joy, whatever it is you're facing right now, he's placed you within it. And he's saying, I've made you a steward here in relationship with me, Rooted and established in my love, you're able to move forward. You're able to make decisions. You're able to kind of make sense of the world around you with trusted community. Submit it to me in prayer to walk with me, to move forward, to take the next step. And I will be with you. I am working in the midst of it even now. That's you know, it's easy, I think, to, to look to the bigger stuff and say, well, it's the the really big, long, drawn-out seasons of of loss where this is really relevant. But in these day-to-day experiences that we have where things just don't go the way we expect, whether it be with work or friendships or family, conversation, let us be a people that are continuously returning again and again and again to this refrain, not to us, not to me, but to your name, who you are, all that you are for me, all that you've promised, all, all the word that you've given to me, the promise that you've given to me. To your name, give the glory. That's where I find my hope. That's how I'm able to move forward. I want to pray for us, um, and then I'm just going to have a, a couple minutes uh, to reflect on a couple questions um, as we allow the Spirit to, to do work through this text on our souls uh, to convict us and draw us near to, to Christ. But let, me, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your tenderness. Uh, thank you for this invitation to return to your love again and again and again. Uh, to see you standing ready uh, to save, ready to receive, ready to, uh, to look at us with kindness in your eyes. And so the places where we, we run after idols, where we build them, where we give our lives to them, where we sacrifice those around us to get to them. Uh, please forgive us. And may we turn to you. May we know that you are the God of the covenant who remembers us according to it, but that is our help and our shield, who does bless us, who gives us life and life eternal. And may that give us confidence and clarity for how to move forward for wherever we are right now. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.